1: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. There are very few topics in Canadian history that have generated more acrimonious nationalist debate than that of the Avro Arrow. Some have called its cancellation a travesty that destroyed an entire Canadian industry. Many of those have laid the blame at the feet of the Americans. We built the most advanced airplane on the planet, and the Americans forced us to destroy it. Others, however, have approached the topic with a more circumspect eye, noting its exorbitant costs and the refusal of the Canadian government to pay for it. In the public consciousness, the Avro Arrow has spawned numerous articles, books, documentaries, and even a film, and yet it feels like this subject matter is still wholly misunderstood and a clarification is desperately needed. This is Season 7, Episode 19, The Avro Arrow, Part 1. For this two-part series on The Avro Arrow, we needed someone to come in and do some heavy lifting. So we've brought in someone who's researched and written extensively on the subject. Russell Eisinger is the registrar at the University of Saskatchewan. He is also a professional affiliate with the Department of Political Studies at the university. Russ did his graduate work on the controversial CF-105 Avro Arrow Interceptor, one of the first researchers to access the declassified archival records on the project. Since then, Russ has continued his research and writing on the Arrow, usually in collaboration with his former graduate supervisor, Don Story. And they are currently working on a book delving into the political and military decision-making behind the project. I began our conversation by asking Russ, what were the roots of the Avro Arrow project?
2: Well, the roots really came out of that post-Second World War period uh, the early origins of the Cold War with the Soviet Union uh, and, of course, the atomic age, the dawn of the atomic age. So Canada, when it, uh, when it uh, was in its post-war period, was sort of thinking about its defense needs. Um, and with the threat of the Soviet Union and the explosion of the Soviet atomic bomb in 1949, Uh, Really, air defense of North America became a a principal concern for both the Royal Canadian Air Force and the United States Air Force, uh, who was their partners in the defense of North America. So the Air Force started thinking very seriously about what it needed for the air defense role. Um, Fortunately for Canada, we had a fairly well-developed aircraft industry having, having participated in the Second World War. So the government of Canada created, uh, or sold, I should say, two crown corporations that they had created during the Second World War, Victory Aircraft Corporation in Malton, which is outside of Toronto, now the Pearson International Airport, and uh, Turbo Research, which was uh, be- uh, engines. Um, so these became Avro Aircraft and uh, Arenda Engines, a private company. And uh, they were tasked uh, with the Royal Canadian Air Force uh, with the first, uh, Canadian designed and built interceptor for the Royal Canadian Air Force, the CF-100 Canuck, uh, which they Mm -hmm. developed uh, and put into service uh, by by 1950. Um, So the Canuck was a great aircraft. You know, we built 692 of them. Uh, No one really remembers it outside of aviation buffs, but it was a Canadian success story and a very effective interceptor, Um, two-seat twin-engined subsonic interceptor. And almost as soon as it had been you know, designed and built and entered service thinking started as to what the next generation of defense needed to look like, because it's a time when technology was, especially aviation technology was changing rapidly. If you think about the time period that the arrows in, you know, we were at war with Germany 10 years beforehand uh, and flying piston engine fighter jets. And now we're flying supersonic jets within a, almost a decade. And the threat too was changing. So those initial uh, Soviet bombers, which were propeller driven, the anticipation was they were going to change into jet and eventually supersonic, uh, and that it needed another generation of aircraft to defend against it. So the Avro Aero was uh, when it was you know, uh, d- thought about uh, in the ni- early 1950s, the early design stages was going to be this next generation supersonic interceptor. Uh, so two seat twin engine, uh, particularly designed to Canadian requirements. Uh, two seat because it needed to carry its own radar fire control. We didn't have a lot of radar systems in Canada. So it needed to be sort of self navigating and self uh, 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 able to uh, you know, fire its own missiles independently. Um, and so that required a, an operator to sit behind the pilot. Twin engine, because we don't have a lot of bases, and as a safety feature, Canadian aircraft have generally been twin engine in case they lose an engine over the north. Uh, and supersonic, because it needed to dash out in a straight line very, very fast uh, when the radars warned that the bomber formations were approaching and get to its uh, area and fire its missiles, uh, which I, I will add were anticipated to be nuclear tipped missiles uh, to destroy Soviet bomber formations. Um, so the design. Uh, was given to Avro Aircraft in 1952 after the RCIF had decided that there was nothing on the drawing boards or in production anywhere uh, that was suitable for their requirements. And that became the Aero, this large Delta wing, um, very advanced uh, requirements for the uh, Air Force in the uh, late, that they anticipated putting into service by like 1960, 61. Um, So that's the origin story of it. So it was
1: this, was this... um was this a government initiative thinking ahead or was this a a military initiative thinking ahead, like separating the politics from the military?
2: Mm. It's hard to differentiate the two. Uh, And the context at the time was that the military in Canada enjoyed a great deal of influence and, and I might often say control over the Canadian, their political masters, the Canadian Mm. government. Um, The defense of North America was seen as the priority. So the RCIF enjoyed a privileged position in the defense budget because of that. Uh, it was a time when, you know, this is the period of the Korean War. There had been a the largest peacetime increase in Canadian defense spending in our in our history in that period. Um, it was taking up 50% of the federal budget almost of wow. uh, defense spending, and the RCIF was taking up 50% of the defense spending. Um, so the influence the RCAF had over the politicians was, was very impressive. It's almost the reverse of what was happening in the United States and the United Kingdom at the time, where for obvious reasons, because of nuclear weapons, there was a emphasis on civilian control of the military. But the national security bureaucracy in Canada uh, really enjoyed a, 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 a deference, I think, mm. the, to them. They, they had influence that they've never had since. Um, so they tended to get what they wanted and the politicians were you know could be forgiven that this was a pretty rarefied technical uh, world. Um, and it was also in a time where the the, the danger was perceived to be real like the, 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 uh, the threat of atomic devastation being rained down on North America was something that politicians think well they're saying we need this so we better believe them because uh, th- that's the risk is the destruction of North America. So they tended to get what they wanted. Um, so the, so defense spending is always a combination of, of the military recommendations and the politicians evaluating. But at that time, uh, the RCF tended to get what they wanted. It helped, I would say, that if you think about Canada in that immediate post-war period, uh, uh, they, we were enjoying quite the economic boom. Like uh, there was, it, times were good. Canada had come out of the Second World War in an extremely strong position economically. Uh, governments had money. And it's a sort of a truism in the defense world that as long as the funds are there, uh, you know, times are good. And the funds were there, especially in the buildup and uh, during the Korean War period, uh, For that there was a feeling we could finance this, that we could finance the needs of, of the military. It's when funds start to diminish that the questions start to be asked about uh, about what is needed for defense by politicians uh, who get nervous about the costs and by uh, other services, uh, because interest service rivalry uh, often arises as other services start to worry that they're not gonna get their wish list of equipment if the other service does. And the RCF was, a, was a, a logical target for the other services because when times were good, they got all the money, but when times were not good, it was obvious they were getting almost all the money so there was a lot of nervousness about that that later on in the 1950s so so it was a period of un, unprecedented influence for the military in canada i would say
1: uh, and so this was the uh, administration of louis st laurent by this yeah. point, point right and and so um so that yeah and this is this is a pretty in- impressive period of spending and and and, and i know that You and me both probably recognize that there's never been a spending period like this before in sort of canadian defense spending i mean may besides the wars themselves um uh and, and what so one of the big things that i've you know that i've read about the arrow and that people have understood about the arrow is that it was very expensive but before we get to the cost perhaps you can tell us what made it so unique what what like you've talked about you know two-seater and, and this navigation system thing. Like that. But maybe could, could you go into detail for our listeners about what made it so special and unique?
2: Sure. Well, it was very advanced, I have to say. And and that has to be qualified because I think uh, leading edge or state of the art in technology always means the most advanced it is at that time. Uh, I find with the arrow and the fact that a myth is growing up with the arrow, which I'm sure we'll talk about too, is it's often seen or believed by people to have been 10 20 30 years ahead of its time and it wasn't that but it certainly was the the best technology that could be had at the time and and the most advanced thinking about the technology um so so that's part of its uniqueness the other uniqueness of it of course is it was canadian you know this is a this is a designed in canada uh aircraft engine uh electronic system and missile at the time. So it was actually has to be thought of as four systems being developed concurrently as opposed to just one because aircraft are a, are a weapons system. And for a small middle power uh, like Canada to be designing something that was so advanced is is really an impressive achievement. And and of course, the, nothing the, 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 that it was canceled takes away from the fact that it was an impressive achievement for that, for a small country. Other things about the Arrow, I mean, it, 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 it's a beautiful design. I don't think anyone would uh, deny that the Arrow is, is, is an elegant, uh, powerful uh, aircraft. Uh, it was huge by the standards of, of aircraft uh, at the time. So it's as large as a Lancaster bomber was in the Second World War. So it was a very wow. big a- a- aircraft partly because of the size of its engines needed to accelerate it to supersonic speeds and and get it out. Also because of the size of its weapons bay, because it was one of the first aircraft to have an internal weapons bay uh, that uh, uh, that is pretty commonplace now. You see it on the F-35, uh, but uh, it was going to carry all of its missiles in this internal package. And th- that gave it a very clean, fast aerodynamic design. And of course, it's a Delta. It's a Delta wing, which was a popular uh, design for aircraft in the 1950s, less so now, and uh, that was a, a design that was very amenable to to interceptor aircraft because uh, people, I think, tend to think when they think about the arrow. Uh, I think in their mind, a lot of people have the, an idea of fighter jets as being like the Sopwith Camel or the Spitfire or the F-18, you know, mm-hmm. and they imagine, you know, a, a dogfighter, you know, someone that's going to get into Uh, The mix with other aircraft up close and personal. And the Arrow was not that. The Arrow was essentially a platform for carrying missiles at high speed out in a straight line to blast bombers. It was never designed to dogfight, uh, was never designed to carry bombs or to be multi-role in the way that aircraft today are. It had one purpose, shooting down Soviet bombers. And the design was very unique for that purpose uh, to Canada. It in some ways, it hurt us because, of course, that made, made were very, meant there were very limited sales opportunity for an aircraft like that uh, for other countries, which did hurt the aero project later on. But it was peculiarly, peculiarly designed for our, our needs. And the RCAF, I would say, that was, that was very deliberate. The RCAF wanted, always wanted, the very, very best of everything. So the arrow represents an aircraft that was the very best of everything: best design, the best electronics, the best missiles, the best engines. That's what the RCF wanted. In some ways, in detrimental to their ultimate goal of getting it because those things are costly. And uh, even though the uh, the arrow sort of extended. Sort of design philosophy in a lot of areas. They used a lot of titanium in it. In it, their design, the design itself was quite advanced. They had a uh, one of the first uh, fly by wire systems that was going into an aircraft. It cut technology, uh, moved technology forward in many many areas, uh, which gave the RCAF the aircraft that they wanted, but at a very very big price.
1: Yeah, and that's that's so interesting. So I. I- I, I really, I'm really interested in this idea of it being a sort of this mobile weapons platform. Like, because, you know, I, I think a lot of our listeners and a lot of people think of Top Gun, right? You know, they think of fighter jets, yeah. you know, and the Arrow is not that. It is not, not a Maverick, all. not at all, not at all. So um, could, could could you, if, if you don't mind, could you expand a little more on the, what you called it, the inboard weapon system?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, Arrow had a, a weapons pod, I guess, is a way to describe it. So it was designed for uh, quick change out. And essentially, the way it was formulated was the weapons bay, which ran most of the underside length of the aircraft, could be taken out in its entirety, almost like a magazine in a rifle could be taken out. And another one could be quickly rolled in and, and put in. And within that, uh, missiles would would snap out. So the doors would open, they'd snap out and be fired. Uh, it was designed to take a number of different kinds of missiles um, uh, of the time. But uh, the missile that they wanted, the RCF wanted, was Sparrow. Sparrow is still an air to air missile that's uh, in service and, and forces. Uh, but uh, they wanted Sparrow 2. Sparrow 2 was a United States Navy missile, uh, a, a new one uh, that was quite advanced. And when the United States Navy decided not to continue to pursue its development, the Royal Canadian Air Force actually took over the project. Um, so we ended up in the missile business as well. It could be argued that there may have been more conservative, safer paths to take uh, in arming it, but, uh, but that was the one they wanted. Uh, but it was also, they talked about unguided rockets at the, at the first, the CF-100 carried unguided rockets. Um, they Falcon was another missile that they talked about and Genie was another missile they talked about and Genie is the uh, is the, uh, the one that was used on the follow on the voodoo uh, the CF 100 that we got after the arrow, um, which is just a gigantic atomic warhead missile. Uh, And that's the one really designed to bust uh, bomber formations. All of these were intended to be carried inside this weapons bay, um, which was a fairly unique conception at the time, because most aircraft had their ordnance hung on the outside of it, which affected their flight uh, characteristics and their speed. But speed was everything for the Arrow, um, which is why they wanted that clean design that the weapons bay gave them.
1: Curious Canadian history, we'll be back after the break.
0: Flushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: That's really fascinating, uh, the way it's designed. So, so was this like from a, from a tech, technological perspective, was this an, the most advanced aircraft of the
2: time? It was certainly up there. Uh, you, you have to kind of compare it to other interceptors of the time. Um, and like the, uh, the contemporaries would be like the F-102 and the F-106 by Convair products in the United States, um, the English Electric Lightning in Britain. Um, so y- yes, it was considered to be probably the most advanced interceptor. Would it have remained that way had it gone into service? Probably not because aircraft, as always, were developing and going forward. And in fact, one of the reasons why the United States, there were many reasons why the United States wasn't interested in purchasing the Arrow, uh, but as it was explained to the Royal Canadian Air Force to their frustration, uh, that they had designs uh, for an even more advanced interceptor that uh, called the F-108 Rapier, um, which had not been envisioned in the initial years of the Arrow when the RCAF went out and looked around and saw anything coming down the the pipeline. Countries were thinking, always thinking about what the next generation would be, and the era would have not been cutting edge uh, for long. On the other hand, the the times were changing, too. So the need for a pure interceptor was changing as well. Uh, uh, The question was starting to arise whether or not countries actually needed interceptors or whether missiles could do the job. Um, should aircraft be multi-role and the Americans ended up canceling the rapier just as we canceled the Aero. They canceled it in 1959 as well before it ever even got to the prototype stage. So it was always, the defense world was always shifting in terms of what, what you could afford, what you needed, how many of them you needed. Um, so, so as advanced as the Aero was, uh, it was not, I would say, significantly more advanced than some of its competitors and debatable as to whether or not having that extra level of technological sophistication actually got you a lot more. If the purpose was to carry a nuclear-tipped missile out and fire it, could not a cheaper and more do it more efficiently? A cheaper aircraft do it more efficiently. Which is, in a sense, what we ended up doing in the end uh, is is accepting a, a cheaper interceptor that did the same job. Uh, after the arrow, so it's debatable then, whether the quality was needed.
1: And, and you know that, and that—that's a great segue into the into the big question, right? uh You know, why was it canceled? And and you so you've talked about the rapier, <clears throat> you've talked about, but I, I I'd love it if you just explore this a little more. You know, because 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 and and we'll talk about this a little later on. But as we know, the cancellation of this arrow is sort of this national. <laughs> Moment, this sort of like this pride in the in the country, and 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 you you're already identifying a lot of really interesting points, but maybe you could explore a little deeper. uh, Like, so why was it canceled?
2: Sure, and that's a complex story. Uh, I will say because I'm sitting. Take your time. (laughs)
1: Take your time.
2: Yeah, because I'm sitting in uh, in Saskatchewan. uh, I mean, I certainly know, and your listeners will know that the responsibility for the cancellation falls firmly on. Prime Minister John Diefenbaker and that Conservative government, uh, because of course they're the government that made the decision and he tends to be uh, the one who's personally vilified as, uh, as the villain in this uh, by people who believe that the aircraft should not have been cancelled. Uh, that ignores a lot of, 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 the, of the context in that almost all of the decisions about the era were made by the Liberal government of Salara. And in his defense, Stephen Baker did inherit this uh, project in 1957 when he was elected, and then had to deal with it. Well after a lot of the decisions had been made about the aircraft, that uh, that could not be undone. That sort of put it on its path. So when Diefenbaker inherited this and other thorny defense problems at the time, um, he had to weigh a number of things. And by 1958-59, the, the both his government and the military had really run up against uh three issues that i i would i argue lead, led directly to the cancellation um the first was how the international strategic environment had shifted over the years from the time in a short time from 1952 when the arrow was uh first uh, uh the design studies started to 1958, 59, when the decisions were being made about whether it should go forward or not, and the shifts had really come in a number of areas. So, strategically, you know, there was a there was there was a shift from defense to deterrence. Um, so, the a, a real debate, strategic defense, about whether an active defense against attack was really worth the investment. And in fact, the United States uh, Air Defense Command. Um, really was not as well-funded and well-equipped, although by our standards, they were very well-equipped. But uh, it was the Strategic Air Command that was well-funded and well-equipped because the emphasis for the Americans was definitely about uh, the credibility of the, the strike force. So deterrence would prevent the Russians from attacking. And uh, deterrence, the, the plans of the Strategic Air Command um should catch uh, uh hopefully catch a lot of the soviet force on the ground and an act of defense really could be handled by the uh by the aircraft that we have and even if you know if a few bombers got through it, the level of destruction would be such that that it, it does beg the point of you know um wh- wh- why have a defense because you're not going to have protected warfare. So really, the importance was deterrence so that it never happens. So there was that strategic shift. There was the missile versus manned aircraft debate, which was uh, really at its peak in this period of time. Uh, countries were canceling aircraft programs. Uh, the British are the uh, probably a prime example, but the Americans did it too, uh, because there was this feeling that the missile um, was going to, if not replace i mean certainly a number of pundits thought that it might totally replace the manned aircraft it at least was going to supplant it uh, and the reality was by 1959 that uh through you know u2 spy flights and other intelligence and, and public pronouncements by the soviet union um, we knew that the bomber force the soviet bomber force was not going to be as significant as uh the missile force was and um, uh, and the Abrair had the unfortunate coincidence of being rolled out of its hangar for the first time on the day the Russians launched Sputnik into space. And uh, that sort of drove home the fact that the technology was shifting rapidly um, to missiles. So it was a legitimate debate about what is, what is better for defense. Is it a missile? What is better for attack? Is it an intercontinental ballistic missile? What should we be doing in terms of ballistic missile defense, which was a big debate in Canada as well? Uh, so that bomber, bomber versus missile, and, and for the historically minded people out there will know that there was a, uh, was a huge debate in the United States and in the election campaigns, the early election campaigns about a bomber gap. Now, was there a bomber gap forming between the United States and the Soviet Union? That shifted almost overnight with Sputnik to is there a missile gap? You know, are we, are we kept keeping up with the Soviets in terms of missiles? Um, so that, that dramatically affected the need for the arrow. Uh, from a strategic sense, because if there isn't as dramatic a bomber threat, why do you need the world's most advanced interceptor? Uh, Cannot something, if you need interceptors, cannot something cheaper bought off the end of a U.S. assembly line do the same job? And shouldn't we be buying missiles like the Bomark missile, which we eventually did bring into service in the RCAF? so that huge debate was going on strategically. And within the Royal Canadian Air Force, I have to say it was going on too. There was a, you talk about inter service rivalry with the other forces, there was an intra service rivalry between officers who wanted the arrow, or at least they wanted some form of manned interceptor, officers who wanted the missiles. And the, the RCAF was very enthusiastic about getting surface to air missiles like the Beaumark, and officers who served not in NORAD, which was Uh, As after 1957, the North American air defense arrangement that we struck with the Americans, but served in NATO uh, in Europe, for which the arrow was not acceptable. And the arrow, uh, what they needed was a different kind of aircraft for the nuclear strike reconnaissance role in Europe. And those officers were getting nervous that if the arrow was purchased, uh, they might not get their aircraft for 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 europe so there's this whole strategic flux going on there within a diminishing defense budget and that's the other part the costs it was a diminishing defense budget so i would say the costs were more determinative determinative Um, the the strategic issues were there uh, but the money that it would have taken to finish the program was what eventually scuppered it uh, because it was not that it was more expensive than a comparable aircraft program in another country, so I'm not saying it was twice as expensive, or you know, it was it was as expensive as some of those programs, but it was the question whether a country like Canada could afford that versus a country like the United States or Britain or France, or um, and that eventually became the question for the government as to can we pay for this for such a small number of aircraft to justify setting up a production line because by 1959 we really only needed between maybe 100 150 aircraft whereas in 1952 we were talking about 500 to 600 aircraft wow so it had diminished to that extent and why would you set up a production line for so few aircraft that are so costly and if we went ahead with this, what other things are we not going to get? So, uh, the Army was getting nervous about are, are we going to get new equipment? Are we going to get? They wanted to get into the missile business too. They wanted to have tactical nuclear weapons on uh, the Honest John system. Uh, the Navy was getting worried they weren't going to get their frigates, they weren't going to get their patrol aircraft. So, in that diminishing defense budget after the Korean War ended, um, the wish lists of all the services couldn't be met and the Avro arrow was the most obvious expensive item in, in the defense budget. So that cost was certainly the factor. And I'm gonna throw in that it, it, it wasn't helped in either case on the strategy or on the money by the fact that the RCAF uh, was, were poor project managers. Like this was a, I argue, a very poorly run weapons acquisition project. Um, they wanted nothing but the best they wouldn't settle for anything but best. They argued with the company who was warning them uh, presciently that, uh, that the changes they were making, like asking to have their own missile system uh, built and designed in Canada, the Sparrow asking to have their own electronic system built and designed in Canada, which was Astra, it was known, uh, even asking to have their own engine designed and built in Canada, which Avro and Arenda were making, Um, all of those things added costs. And the company was warning this, uh, but they didn't want to hear that. They didn't manage the project in the sense they had no project management office until 1957. So there was poor idea of how much it would actually cost in the end. They were very resistant to actually evaluating the need for the aircraft. So the army in particular in this time was actually quite savvy. And they used to ask, really pressing questions at the chiefs of staff committee meetings about, you know, have you, have you talked to the Americans? Are you sure that this fits in the strategic context of what is needed? Uh, is, it, is it a good idea to have such an advanced interceptor when a cheaper one might do? What is your overall strategy? And the truth of it was the RCF's overall strategy was procurement. They were focused on getting a replacement aircraft for the Canuck. And they didn't really think about, you know, how does this actually fit to North America, do the Americans actually want us to operate this aircraft? Um, what should we be doing for the for, for defense? Uh, would a slightly poorer aircraft technically do the same same job? So the fact that the RCAF had such such uh, overwhelming ambition, which I often call hubris, uh, that they were so they were pro- they were proud. This was the golden age of the RCAF. They were the most powerful, the most elite. They had more personnel than the army. Um, they were not going to settle. And that commitment that they had to that idea drove the costs up and ignored a lot of the strategic shifts that were happening at the time. Uh, as one commentator said, which is always one of my favorite lines, James Ayers, um, that it was a force for which the sky was the environment, but not the limit. And there's a lot of truth to that, that they really could not settle for second best until they were forced to make hard decisions. Choices, uh, and the government was forced to make hard choices between what they what they wanted, and that by 1959, that uh, that the decision was really made in 1958, and there was a lot of delay. Uh, the Diefenbaker government did temporize for for the reasons, all the reasons that you would think a government would. Um, they uh, were worried about the international situation at the time, so they thought they'd keep it going as a hedge against something happening. Uh, but they were also worried about the impact on their political fortunes, on national prestige. Um, so they'd kept it going probably longer than it should. But by 1959, pretty, pretty much everyone, including the Air Force, had agreed that the project couldn't go on and the, the decision had to be made. And it was made in February of 59.
1: Um, that's an r- incredible context that you provided to, to, to this decision. Um... Was it? Did was there? Was there? Was the Diefenbaker administration reluctant to cancel it, or were they were they convinced by this point in February fifty nine that like yes, this had to happen?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, the Diefenbaker administration, you know, had its had its pluses and its minuses. Uh, I I will say, uh, when they were elected in nineteen fifty seven, you have to remember they had a minority government, and uh, they'd inherited the arrow. the from the liberals that inherited a bunch of other problems uh the economy was not as strong uh, as it had been under the liberals for the period after the war it was starting to go into recession so they had and they had been promised uh they had been elected on a promise of of spending in other areas uh, other than defense so they were really looking for cost savings uh on the military side so that they could do other things and uh things like uh, support for farmers and uh, increased pension payments. So this is also sort of the start of the the welfare state uh, in Canada, or at least the further development of the welfare state in Canada. So they had these budgetary problems, but they had a minority government, uh, which they were very reluctant to put at risk. So the decision they made in 1957 when they came in was... Uh, to essentially to not make a decision, which is a form of a decision, um, they decided to take to keep the program going. And of course, this was what the military advice was in 1957 um, for a year, and then they were going to review it again. Uh, the company sort of read what they wanted to from that, which was that that the project was uh, got a green light, and the military read what they wanted from that. Um, when they were reelected. And there was a federal election in 1958 uh, in which the Diefenbaker government won the largest electoral mandate in Canadian history. Still is the largest one. 208 of 265 seats. So they had a massive mandate to basically do whatever they wanted to do. So they were politically clear, I guess I would say at that point. And they came back and they revisited the program after their one year uh, delay. And at that point, they became, I'd say, more horrified about the costs. Um, they uh, they actually ordered a report to evaluate it uh, and sort of uh, convince them that uh, that that it was it was as expensive as they as they thought it was. But it was still a difficult decision for that government. I mean. It's personalized. Canadians tend to personalize their politics. It's the Diefenbaker government, just as it's the, you know, was the Salera government. You see the embodiment of the government and the leader, uh, but it's really cabinet government in Canada. Um, so the cabinet met on the Arrow innumerable times in 1958 to discuss what to do. And they talked about all the things you would imagine political leaders would talk about in the face of the, of the problem they had. Uh, so how does this affect our sovereignty? How does this affect our relationship with the Americans? How does it, uh, canceling the aircraft, I mean, how does this affect defense? Um, how does this affect the economy if we went forward with it? How does it affect employment if we cancel it? Um, so these, these discussions were quite intense and I've read all the cabinet minutes on all these uh, meetings. So they, they took it seriously. But they could not come to the conclusion that it there was any other way forward other than canceling it within the environment they 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 were in, and again the military consensus had broken down, and uh, so that the military themselves were were in the end giving advice that it it should be canceled. Uh, where you want to criticize the Diefenbeger government is, uh, I think, the time they took to make decisions. Um, you know. W- could they have taken it in 1957? It would have been a brave political move for a, a minority government to do that, but they could have done that. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests the Liberals, if they'd been re-elected, were going to do it too. Uh, we're going to cancel the aircraft, but they decided to delay, and then they decided to delay again in 1958. They they canceled the Sparrow missile. They canceled the Astro Electronic program uh, on the basis that they could find cheaper, off-the-shelf American alternatives. But they kept the program going for another six months where they were going to review it. And uh, the finance minister at the time in his, well, called it uh, the most expensive unemployment relief measure in Canadian history. But there was an element of not, not really knowing what to do. Uh, they were worried about the international situation. There was a crisis in Formosa, which is now Taiwan, and islands of Komoya and Matsu. Um, they were worried about the situation deteriorating. Um, and they were worried about the impact it was going to have on the economy and on prestige and on pride. And uh, so they delayed. I think they can be criticized for the temporizing of the delay, but not for the decision. And ultimately, that's, there's a very interesting letter between Lester Pearson and C.D. And, uh, Howe after they canceled it, where Lester Pearson, the leader of the opposition, the liberal opposition, was asking how, who had been a minister in the government that had decided on the arrow? He'd been minister of defence production. How they should deal with the cancellation in the house, and it basically said, "We don't criticize the decision; criticize how the decision was taken, because we would have made the same decision, but we would have made it faster, you know, more decisively." So criticize how long the maker government took, uh, how they're framing it. Um, you know, the effect on the, on the uh, workforce, and the economy, but don't criticize the actual decision, which is what the liberals essentially did. So uh, so the Diefenbaker government is, is responsible in the sense they took the decision on the cancellation, but there's a whole lot of project history that led up to that. That uh, blame should be apportioned, I think, on the Salara government for letting it get to the stage it had been uh, when the Diefenbaker government inherited it.
1: I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at DocBoris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.